Trinity Church. How are you this morning? Hey, I love hearing you sing. I don't know if you realize it, but one of the focal points for all your voices is right back there. And when I get to stand there during the last song and just listen to you sing, it just lifts my heart up with joy. So thank you for that. I'm so thankful we have a great worship team. And as we begin this morning, I'd like to ask you to just stand. I know you were just standing, but say hi to somebody next to you. Tell them you're glad they're here. I think we're far enough past COVID for that. Well, I know that this could, <laughs> I know this could go on for quite a while, so I'm going to ask you to grab a seat again. <laughs> hey, thank you so much. Boy, I knew, I knew I ran a risk of losing control. <laughs> and that just happened. But you know, it was so good to take some of the time that we dedicate to the Word of God and remind ourselves that we are connected to each other. I'm hearing a bit of an echo. Is that better? There we go. Okay. Hey, my name is Doug Baker, and I'm the interim lead pastor here in our transition uh, of journeying with Jesus as we wait and look for this new next lead pastor. And uh, I just also want to remind you, tonight is really important for us as a church. If you can be back here at 6 o'clock from 6 to 7, you're going to hear the results of over 500 voices talking about what do we think Trinity should be and what do we think Trinity is and what should the next pastor be like. And Nancy Moore and Associates is going to be here to share that with you. And yesterday morning, I got the privilege of sitting in with the elders and pastors and ministry directors and hearing some very positive feedback. So I'm encouraged. I hope that you can come tonight and hear the same message we heard yesterday. So that's from 6 to 7 tonight. And also, by the way, when you get the e-news every week, may I encourage you to open it up and read it, uh, click on the different things going on. In particular, the directional team videos are being rebranded and refocused. As the directional team and I have talked about the life of our church, we've said we want to share all of the exciting and encouraging things going on in the life of our church. So every week, you're going to hear a different story of what God is doing right now at Trinity. And we hope that is uplifting for you. We hope it's encouraging. So take some time to just take a look at that. And uh, I think you will also be encouraged. Let me take a minute and pray for us as we get into 2 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning. Heavenly Father, we've come to that time of this service where we have not only been worshiping you in music and and uh, thinking about what you're doing in our lives. But we've come to the word this morning. And Father, our heart's desire is that your Holy Spirit, who indwells every true believer, that he would work in us. He'd work in our feelings. He'd work in our thoughts. He'd work in our will. And he would reconstruct and repurpose and renew us to be more and more in the image of Jesus Christ. Father, in this world today, whether or not it believes it, it needs Jesus, and it needs the church. And Father, I know that many people have been put off by the church in past decades, and there's a, 
a bitter feeling in their mouths about the, the church. And Father, sometimes we perhaps deserve that, but we know that this is your bride. This is your church. And Father, it doesn't belong to us. We're stewards of it, and we're glad to be. But Father, we pray that your word today would dig into our hearts and lives. And Father, if there's things that need to be unearthed, Father, please do that. We want to be like Jesus. If there are things that need to be affirmed and, and we've been doubting them, Father, we just pray that you would reaffirm them for us. And Father, if there are things that need to be celebrated because of your greatness, much like Josh was talking about camp and the glory of God, Father, we pray you'd celebrate that in our hearts today. So help us to be attuned to your spirit. May we learn from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. This week while I was preparing the sermon, I got a phone call from my son-in-law, Brandon, and on my phone, his picture shows up, and so I always know he's calling. So I, I um, answered the phone call, and I said, hey, Brandon, how you doing? They've been sick a little bit this last week. We haven't seen him. And instead of Brandon's deep, rich, comforting voice, I hear this high, high-pitched little boy voice. Hi, Grandpa. <laughs> and I realized, oh, my oldest grandson, Dom, will oftentimes say to his dad, hey, can I call Grandma or Grandpa? Oh, sure, here you go. So I think it's Brandon calling, and here it's this, this young voice. And I said, Dominic, oh, I'm so sorry, man, I misunderstood. How are you doing? And you have to know that Dominic is an incredibly verbose five-year-old. <laughs> there's never a pause with him when he's in the room. But there's this long pause. I'm thinking, gosh, he must have been really sick. And suddenly that little high-pitched voice comes back on, no, Grandpa, it's me. And I realize, oh, it's my younger grandson, Ollie. <laughs> this is the first phone call I've received from him. And I said, oh, Ollie, I'm so sorry I misunderstood. How are you doing? And we made it right, and we had a great conversation about the book he was reading about Twux and just a lot of fun stuff. <laughs> Have you ever said or done something that's been completely misunderstood? You know, it does happen quite often. And, and when it does, it can actually come with some, some really more difficult and painful consequences than, than Ollie and I experienced. Because misunderstanding frequently results in hurt feelings or um, wasted time and energy as we try to figure out, what are they saying? What did I think they were saying? Wrong first impressions. And sometimes even broken relationships or damaged workplaces or frustrating home life and at times even fragmented churches when we misunderstand what others have said or they have misunderstood our motives. George Bernard Shaw said, the single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. Right? That can be really true. So this morning, if you've ever had something you've said, be misunderstood. If you've ever had something that you've done, be misrepresented then you know how important it is to be clearly understood and fairly observed. The wonderful thing about this, and besides the fact it's true in all human relationships, is that it can happen in the church. And the not-so-wonderful thing about that is that when it happens here, it has eternal consequences. When we as individuals misunderstand each other or we mistake what we're called to do in the body of Christ or we misconstrue, misconstrue who owns the church, it's not who's been here the longest, it's not the elders, 
It's Jesus. And when we misjudge each other's motives and goals, there are eternal consequences. So this is really a significant passage for us this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to take a look at verses 12 through 24 this morning. 1 Corinthians 1, 12 through 24. And what we're going to find here is that the people of Corinth had misunderstood and misjudged Paul, and it was having a devastating impact on their lives. So they disbelieved his apostolic role and authority, and, and so they were devaluing his words. This guy isn't an authoritative apostle of Jesus Christ. Why listen to him? They misunderstood his intentions. And so they were misrepresenting his motives. Why did Paul say that? That's just because he wanted something out of it. They doubted his promises. And consequently, they were listening less and less to his statements about God's own great promises. And all of this was leading to greater confusion in the church, deeper mistrust, increasing disunity, and a downward spile of criticism and frustration among them. So here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, Paul takes the time to talk with them about his relationship with them and how important it is to understand fully what each other is saying and doing. So he gives four important corrections this morning to their perceptions. And by the way, these are vital corrections for us as well today as we communicate with each other here in the body of Christ. So what are they? Well, first of all, Paul corrects their understanding of his actions. And you see that in verse 12. He says, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by worldly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely toward you. His point is, I think, that in this world, we can either act with self-interest, human self-interest, or with godly sincerity. And I think what he means by that is that we can speak and we can act in ways that are wise in the eyes of the world around us. Ways that people would approve so we can be responsive to the power brokers of our culture and listen to their voices and speak in the manner in which they speak. We can be uh, uh, cooperating with a wokest agenda or populist agenda or politically correct agenda of those who are around us in the world today. We can be in sync with social media crowds. Or we can speak and act in ways that are in alignment with God's word, with godly sincerity. And Paul chooses this latter way of acting. In fact, he gives us several outstanding qualities of godly sincerity. So if you're sitting here this morning and saying, well, what in the world is godly sincerity? Paul says, well, let me give you four things that are a part of my life. And by the way, as you look for Christian leaders, as we look for the next lead pastor, as we think of leadership in our church, by the men and women who lead us, these are some of the things we're looking for from them as well. Paul recommends them. He says, number one, they need to act in good conscience. They need to act in good conscience. 
They need to be aligned with this inner compass that God has put in every individual that lines itself up with God's values and God's truths. Now, I'll admit the fact that today we don't hear a lot about the idea of conscience, do we? We don't talk about this in our culture very much at all, this idea of that inner compass. But I believe it continues to be one of God's greatest natural gifts to mankind. Now, we'll talk a little bit later about God's greatest supernatural gift to mankind, but this is one of his natural gifts. It's inborn to us. The Gospel Coalition describes it this way. In the biblical sense, conscience serves as a witness to what we already know to be true from the Word of God. When we conform to the biblical values of our conscience, we feel a sense of pleasure or relief. But when we violate those values of our conscience, it induces, induces anguish or guilt. And this is probably why we don't talk about this very much today, right? We don't like the idea of guilt or shame or anguish. He goes on to say, the conscience is to our souls what pain sensors are to our bodies. They inflict distress in the form of guilt whenever we violate what our hearts tell us is right. Paul listened to his conscience that was attuned with the word of God, and he chose to act in agreement with it. And he says, so everything we've done among you is in agreement with how God has taught me to live. Have you ever heard of the one another's of the Bible? There are 47 times in the New Testament that God talks about how we are to act toward each other. So here's the word of God, and our conscience would be to act in agreement with that if we wanted to feel that sense of pleasure. What's interesting to me is that all 47 of these can be grouped into one of four categories. Isn't that interesting? So wouldn't you want to know, what are the four big ways we should act toward each other, where our conscience should agree? Well, number one, it simply says, love each other. I like that. Love each other. Some of the commands are love one another, serve one another in love, tolerate, tolerate one another in love, be devoted to one another in love, and it goes on. A third, folks, a third of the one another's just say love each other. Another third of the one another's say be united with one another. Here are some of those. Don't grumble against one another. Be at peace with one another. Accept one another. Forgive one another. Don't complain against one another. That's another third. 66% of those one another's. Just love and be united. You want to guess what the third category is? Be humble toward one another. Wow. Love, unity, humility. Those are great things to do toward one another. The last one, by the way, are general comments. You can't really group them together. It's about 19%. So number one, acting with a clear conscience. Number two, Paul says, for leadership that he's done is acting with holiness. You remember, holiness is just to be set apart in a unique way that everybody looks at that individual and says, man, they're different in a really positive way. And Paul became holy in the sense that he wanted to be like Jesus. And so he became a servant to his listeners. He sacrificed his well-being for theirs. He looked out for their interests rather than his own, Philippians 2. And he put their welfare ahead of his own, just like Jesus had done. Number three, he says, I acted with sincerity. This is the godly sincerity. But the word in Greek literally means uh, viewed in the sunshine. 
How many of you like getting outdoor time? That's one of my big things. My daughter actually has a percentage of her day that needs to be outdoor. Out in the sunshine, everything is a lot clearer. You get the sense that you can, you can see how things are. And so Paul says, hey, guys, gals, there is no hocus pocus in my presentation. There is uh, no hidden agenda here. There's no hieroglyphics. There's no secret ciphers to figure out. I'm just telling you what I think and what I, I want to be like. Uh, he said, what you see is what you get. This, I'm a loving man of God intent on your well-being. And lastly is acting with God's grace. Acting with his grace. Giving people the benefit of the doubt. Being gracious. Offering rather than demanding. Serving rather than dominating. Isn't it wonderful that Paul says, here's the qualities of a great leader. Whether it be a man or woman in ministry, whether it be our next pastor, this is what you look for. And he says, this is what I am. So he corrects their understanding of his actions, but then he goes on. And he says, you need to understand more correctly my words. So look at verses 13 and 14. We are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understood. There's no hidden agenda here. And I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us. We still have to have this dialogue. We're still figuring each other out. But he says, I hope you will fully understand that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us and we will boast of you. What is he talking about? On the day of the Lord Jesus, I want to boast in you and I want you to boast in me. A very positive thing. Well, he's saying, my letters and my conversations are straightforward and clear. I know you didn't get everything that I was trying to communicate, but there's one thing you have to be sure to get. And that is, there is a day coming called the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture describes this as the Bema Seat Judgment, a time when all Christians will gather before Jesus Christ and we will be held accountable by him for every word I have spoken and every action I have taken in this life. This is not salvific. It's not a moment of, are you saved or not? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tells us clearly that our salvation is secure. But he wants this idea of the day of judgment to sink into their thoughts and have gravitas in their hearts. This is so important. He says, even if you misunderstood me, don't misunderstand this. Because on that day, which is yet future even for us, although it's not uncertain in any way, he wants that moment to be a party rather than a graveside service. He wants it to be full of backslapping and celebration rather than tears and sadness. He wants it to be a moment of boasting in the Corinthians. Look at how they lived their lives, Lord. Look at what they did, how they handled your word, how they obeyed it. And he wants them to be able to boast in Paul. Man, this guy taught us the truth. He lived it out in front of us. What a great thing. He wants that day to be powerfully joyful. Now, by the way, he had already written to them about this in 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5. But take a look on the screen at 2 Corinthians 5. He says, and so we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord 
So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Folks, there is no exception there. Every one of us, every Christian around the globe, before us, now, and after us, will stand in that moment. He says, we, will, we must all appear before the judgment and the seat of Christ. Why? So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Man, that's potent. He said, it's okay if you misunderstood me. Don't miss this. And again, this is not a salvific moment. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of your own. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Very clear. This is, this is not how we live our lives by earning our salvation. And Romans 1 tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but that we have been set free in Christ in Christ Jesus. We're not condemned. We've been set free. This is our birthright. But he's saying there is a judgment day coming that will evaluate our lives and our words and our behaviors, and he wants to reward us for what has been done. But he will also remove from us anything done for ourselves. Consider a few things we'll be judged for. And again, this is for rewards, not salvation. Number one, I believe we'll be judged for how well we obeyed the Great Commission. Matthew 28, right? 18 through 20. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. I think he'll hold us accountable for that. Did we do that as a church? Did we do that as individuals? Did we support it? Did we pray for it? Did we go? I think we'll be judged for how well we engaged in the great commandment, right? Luke 10, 27. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and mind and strength and, and love your neighbor as yourself. I think he'll hold us accountable for that. I think he'll hold us accountable for how victorious we were over sin. Romans 6, 1 through 4 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, if God gives me grace for my sins, if I sin more, I get more grace? That's a very poor argument. And he goes on to say, by no means, meganoita, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? I think on that day, that will be evaluated. I think a couple of other things. I think for our thoughts and our words that we speak, Matthew 12, 3 through the end of, or excuse me, 33 through 37. Listen to Jesus' words. He's saying this to the Pharisaical leaders. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. Make up your minds, guys. <laughs> what kind of person are you going to be? For, he says, the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? And notice the next phrase. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, this day of Christ, the Bema seat, when all of God's people are gathered, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Wow. My mom used to tell me that. <laughs> Doug, be careful what you say. 
Because when you stand before Jesus, every single word that you have spoken will be brought to account. And the careless words you've spoken, God help you. And as a young teenager, I remember thinking, okay, yeah, I need to, I need to pay attention to that. He says, for by your words you'll be justified, by your words you'll be condemned. And number five, I think for how we feared the Lord. Malachi 3.16 says, then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord, the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. And that's probably just the beginning. Do you see how vital this is for us to understand? That we don't go through the Christian life saying, man, I'm saved and I can just live in whatever pattern I'd like. God says, no, you're saved so that you live in a different pattern of life like Joshua's describing for us. And when you stand before God, he rewards you for those righteous choices. GotQuestions.org, great website, by the way, if you have questions. It's appropriately titled, Got Questions. Talks about rewards, and it says the rewards we gain in heaven are not like the rewards we earn on earth. We tend to think in terms of material things, mansions and jewels. I've got a mansion just over the hill. You know, those are some of the songs we think. And we think materially, and he goes on to say, but those things are only representations of the true rewards we will gain in heaven. A child who wins a soccer trophy treasures the trophy he receives, not for the sake of the trophy itself, but for what the trophy means, that tournament they won, that climactic moment in the sports world. Likewise, any rewards or honor we gain in heaven will be precious to us because they carry the weight and meaning of our relationship with God and because they remind us of what he did through us on earth. In this way, rewards in heaven glorify God and provide us with joy and peace and wonder as we consider God's work in us and through us. And notice this next phrase. He says, the closer we were to God in this life, the more centered on him, the more aware of him, the more dependent on him, the more desperate for his mercy, the more there will be to celebrate. We're like characters in a novel, or if you like to watch Hallmark movies, they're rather predictable, right? Like characters in them who suffer doubt and loss and fear throughout the story, wondering if they'll ever really have their heart's desire. Finally, when the happy ending comes and desire is fulfilled, there comes a completion and they point out the story would not be satisfying without that completion. Rewards in heaven are the completion of our earthly story. And those rewards will be eternally satisfying. Someone has once said that in heaven, we will all have full glasses to toast the greatness of God. They'll be filled to the brim with, with joy and peace and fulfillment and, and wonder and gratitude and love. God's rewards for all that we have done in this life. We will have that full cup to toast his greatness and glory. But for some of us, those glasses will be like this. A shot glass. And it will be full to the top with all that God did in and through them in this life. But the size of the cup will be determined by what that person did in this life to send ahead for God to make the cup. 
The rewards, the amount of the rewards, yes. Now, some of us will have that. And maybe bigger. Huge cups. Again, in the same way, full to the brim with all of the rewards, all of the joy, all the pleasure in God, all of the wonder at his goodness to us. Some will just have more than others. And I think that's borne out for us in 1 Corinthians 3. This is not just some idle speculation that comes out of late night sermon preparation. (laughs) Right? Look at 1 Corinthians 3. According to the grace of God given to me, Paul says, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There's our salvation, the foundation. But now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, which he'll describe for us in a minute, or wood and hay and straw, verse 13 says, each one's work will become manifest For that day will disclose it, because it'll be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but as through fire. Do you see the comparison going on? How have you lived your life? Have you lived your life in ways that build into the kingdom of God and lift up the gospel and exemplify the Christ-like character God desires? That gold, silver, and precious stones will survive. It'll go into the cup. It'll be the level of your joy and pleasure in the presence of God, your reward for how you live this life. But if we live our lives for ourselves, our own pursuits, sports becomes more important than Sunday. We live and speak in ways that, that don't reflect the kingdom of God and his values, that wood, hay, and straw is just going to be consumed and will enter heaven, but as through the fire. There won't be much left. We get the shot glass. Both of these are completely full, but they do differ in magnificence and in resources for serving God in eternity. So, folks, every word of encouragement that you speak to another person because you feel prompted by the Holy Spirit just to encourage them, that is eternally rewarding. Every refusal to use God's name in a careless OMG manner where we don't diminish the greatness of God, but we lift him up, that has a benefit for us on the other side of eternal life. Every act to honor your parents here and now has a benefit. Every effort to do good to those who hate you in this world is eternally rewarding. Every generous gift made to the church and the kingdom work of God in time or treasure or talents has that benefit. Look at Hebrews 6. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. We desire each one of you to show the same eagerness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So how is, your, how is my eternal 
bank account doing? What size cup is awaiting us in joy and love and goodness and wonder? Folks, are we preparing for this party, this moment of examination? How are you investing in eternity now by what you do and by what you say? Paul says, it's my desire that when we stand there, I can boast in you and you can boast in me that we both have lived a life that has fully lived out the actions of God. Paul gives us two other simple points. Thirdly, he says, I want to correct your understanding of my promises. Notice verses 15 through 20. Because I was sure of this. Now, this refers back to his thinking about that day of judgment and being able to boast in them. He says, because I am sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say, oh, yeah, 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 or no, 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 at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it's always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him, and that is why it is through him that we offer our amen to God for his glory. Paul knew that spiritual growth only occurs through investments of time and training. And that's why he said to the uh, Corinthian people, hey, I want to come back and visit you again. I'm going to go to Macedonia. I'm going to come back and visit you a second time. Then you can send me to Judea. But something happened on his most recent visit with them. It was what he called the painful visit. And his heart had been so terribly bruised by the way he was treated in the Corinthian church by false and mean-spirited accusations that he changed his plans, which appeared to be a failure to keep his word. You see, one of the local leaders had stood up in a church gathering when Paul came to visit them, and he accused Paul of being a fake, a charlatan, a phony baloney, an unskilled speaker, unworthy of our attention. And not one, not one of the church members stood up and said, hey, that is not true. He started the church. He brought us to faith in Christ. He's taught not one person stood up and defended Paul. And it crushed his heart. It took the wind out of his sails. And he changed his plans. And when he left Corinth, he didn't go to Macedonia to come back to them. He went to Ephesus, where he had spent three years where he knew he was loved and he knew he was valued. Isn't that typical of human nature? Man. He put off his next visit. And so the, the Corinthians, in their calloused spiritual point of view, accused him of being fickle. Yeah, you don't keep your word. And so Paul writes this to him. He says, look, no, 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 hold on. I wanted you to have a second experience of grace. That's why I was going to come back to you. And, and not coming back to you, you didn't get that experience of grace. 
Now, what is he talking about? This is really actually important for us. Our charismatic friends, of whom I have many, would probably say this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the speaking in tongues moment that he wanted them to have. But we also believe that context is always king. So let's look at the context for just a minute because we really need to understand what was he wanting to give them. So look at verse 16 in your text. This will not be on the screen for you, but notice what he says. So he wants to see them on his way to Macedonia. That's visit one. And he wants to come back to them from Macedonia. That's the second visit he's talking about. And then he wants to send him on his way to Judea. Now, what is fascinating, the context there is of traveling from one point to another. I'm going to visit you physically twice. But there's something more in the context that we need to notice. And you find it in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 10, where he again describes this same journey. He uses the same word, grace, but he fills it with meaning. This will be on the screen for you. 2 Corinthians 8. He's writing, again, same group of people. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty that has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. He's talking about the grace of God in Macedonia, this, this welling up of generosity. Verse 3 says, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Can you picture that? Paul, please, please. I know I've already given you... Come on, I, more. Can I... No, no, I know. Honey, come on, bring your purse. You know, we're going to give more. Honey, we can't afford that. Yes, we can. Come on, come on. Begging earnestly for the privilege, the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And notice the last few verses here. He says, We urged accordingly Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you Corinthians this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, the Macedonians, that your love also is genuine, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment, this benefits you. He's not talking about a baptism of the Spirit. He's not talking about tongues. He's talking about generosity, giving. This act of grace of digging deep into their savings, participating in helping others, going above and beyond what they could afford. And it's all propelled by their understanding of what Jesus had done graciously toward them. So folks, when we talk about giving, we need to understand the best and greatest reason to give generously to God's people in need and to the kingdom work is, is not because we have to meet our church budget. We do. 
But that's not the best reason to give. It's, it's not because we want children's ministry to thrive or we want to see the parking lots paved or, or the property around the church and new plants going in. It, it's not just to help the ill and bereaved and struggling on the edge. It's not just to have a great staff and powerful ministries. The greatest reason to give, I'm glad that went off, is to become like Jesus in the way he has given to us. How are, you, how are you doing in excelling in this grace? This is the experience of grace Paul desired for them. Do you give generously to God's people in his work? Does it cost us something as it did Jesus, who in his richness in heaven sacrificed it to come here and serve us as a slave and ultimately as a sacrifice? Are we giving generously to that purpose? And let me just, last of all, talk about this fourth area. Paul corrects their understanding of the Holy Spirit. Verses 21 and following. It is God who establishes us with you. Notice that. You should underline that if you have a paper Bible, if you have a way of highlighting that. Us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put us also with his seal upon us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. I was so broken by this. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in your faith. You see, the disunity between Paul and the Corinthian Christians was primarily due to a failure to really grasp the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives individually and corporately. Just like a car engine that struggles because the oil level is really low or it's polluted. Or just like a chocolate chip cookie batch that tastes rancid and that's a little too dry because the butter was old or the two large eggs were bad. So also the unity of a church can be dislocated and it can be damaged when the Holy Spirit is held at arm's length or misunderstood in his presence and work in our lives. So our unity, our identity, as, as what Paul calls, calls us with you, is not something we can manufacture. This is not something you or I can, can create or promote on our own. It's important we know that. This rests fully on our cooperation with God and his spirit. And we find that in verse 21. Look at that. It is God, he says, who establishes us with you in Christ. How does he do that? Well, he anoints us with the Holy Spirit. You remember in the Old Testament, where did you see anointing happen? It was the prophet who got anointed, go and prophesy. It was the priest who was anointed, go to the temple and work. And it was the king who was anointed, go and rule your people. So the anointing with oil was always done as a commissioning act to go and do something. And Paul writes for us here that we've been anointed. Acts 1 and 2 talks about the anointing, baptism of the Holy Spirit on God's people. And what did they do? They were commissioned to proclaim at Pentecost in the languages of all the known people who came the greatness of God. And Peter preaches a message of repentance and come to Christ. You and I have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. And for those of the young people who came to Christ at camp, you know what happened in that moment? The Holy Spirit anointed them. 
supernaturally commissioned them and said, go and live in the kingdom of God. Serve the purposes of Christ. But the second thing, and the last thing we want to look at this morning, is that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. What in the world is that? Well, Paul goes back to an ancient custom. When someone wanted to send a letter or some kind of manuscript to someone else, and they wanted to be sure it would arrive and nobody would open it on the way and just take whatever was in the manuscript or the letter. So they would take wax and seal the back of it. They'd take their signet ring and they'd push it into the wax and they would give it to somebody and they'd say, I want you to deliver this to the individual to whom it's addressed. And Paul says, you guys, you're the envelope. And everything you do in life is in the envelope. And the envelope is addressed at the top from God the Holy Spirit. And it's addressed to God the Father. Because the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that we will make it to heaven and God will evaluate everything we've said and done. You're saved. Here are your rewards. So I had a little problem with the wax on the back. But this one says, From God the Holy Spirit to God the Father, I met Alice and Karen this morning. We're going to imagine this is Alice's life. And when she became a Christian, we need a bigger envelope, don't we? Something that's got a little bit more room for the years and wonders that you've encountered. But God sealed her life the moment she came to know Jesus Christ. And from that moment until when she stands before him, she is putting into this things that she's doing for the greatness of God, for the glory of God, for the gospel of God. And someday it guarantees that the Holy Spirit says this will arrive before God the Father and Jesus Christ will open it because it's sealed with the Holy Spirit. Her life has been sealed. Alice, would you mind opening that? You may need a pen or you know, a knife or a, you know, some kind of broadsword. Yeah, just go ahead and open it up. Here, yeah, use your pen. You bet. I could ask for a knife and I'd probably get 200, right? Guys? What guy doesn't go around without a knife? All right, there you go. What's inside? There's a $5 bill. Hold on. Oh, she didn't want to give that back to me. <laughs> she gets to keep it. And by the way, it says, thank you for your service to God. Now, in her envelope, just based on my conversation with her this morning, it's going to be a lot more. She's going to have the Coca-Cola glass. She's going to have been serving Christ in ways. That's yours. That's your life. Well, that's not your life, but that is your reward. <laughs> There's your inheritance. <laughs> Every one of you is an envelope that the Holy Spirit has sealed with his presence. And he says, I guarantee I will work in your life. I guarantee that I will be present in every moment, whether it be great or gut-wrenching. I guarantee that you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ in that moment. And if you follow my guidance, if you allow yourself to be filled with the Spirit on a daily basis, which, by the way, is the only command that we have in relationship to the Holy Spirit, is to allow him to fill us. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Allow him to fill you. I guarantee that when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, it will be a time to backslap, have joy, and a party rather than tears and sadness. Look at verses 23 and 24, and we'll end with this. But I call God to witness against me, he says. 
It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but notice this last line. But we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in your faith. And our faith is strengthened when we have the kind of spiritual leaders we should have and we become like them. Our faith is strengthened when we understand every word we speak and action we take will be accounted before Christ on that day. Our faith is strengthened when we give generously to God's people and to God's work, intentionally, sacrificially, passionately, begging for the favor to be able to be a part of this because of what Jesus did for me. And our faith is strengthened when we understand the role and finality of the Holy Spirit's work in us individually and corporately. Would you pray with me? Father, at first glance in this passage, we see Paul's frustrations, his angst over these relationships that are not working well. But Father, at the end of the passage, as we look back, we can see how you worked in Paul's life to make him a man of godly sincerity, of clear conscience, of of holiness, being separated. And God, we would ask today that you would help our leadership, any one of us who leads in any way. You would already be working in the life of the next pastor to make us into that kind of leader. Father, we pray that we would take time to clearly communicate and give each other grace in our relationships. To really take time to listen well and not just assume we have already understood. And Father, we want to praise you for the work of the Holy Spirit in us who anoints us for a purpose so that we're not aimless in this Christian life. We're not left on our own to our own devices and doing whatever we desire. But Father, you've anointed us and commissioned us to be the people of God and to live for the kingdom of God. And Father, you've sealed us and said, I will so work in your life that ultimately, when you stand before Jesus, it will truly be a time of great delight. So Father, thank you for all you've given us. We entrust ourselves again to you as Trinity Church, as individual followers of Jesus. Father, help us to be like Jesus in all of these ways. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.